Welcome to the Tiwahanga Infrastructure for a Better Future podcast, a series where we talk to experts both from here and overseas about the infrastructure challenges we are facing. To solve New Zealand's infrastructure challenges, we need to deliver quality infrastructure at an affordable price. So how much does it cost to build infrastructure in New Zealand and how do we compare with other high income countries? That's the subject of a report that we published last month entitled The Lay of the Land, Benchmarking New Zealand's Infrastructure Delivery Costs. In our report, we draw on research from Oxford Global Projects, who provide expert advice on infrastructure project management and benchmarking around the world. Both our report and the Oxford Global Projects companion report are available on our website, tewahanga.govt.nz. For this podcast, we're joined by Andreas Lied and Dirk Poka from Oxford Global Projects, who will discuss their findings and share some of their broader insights. Andreas is head of data science at Oxford Global Projects, and Dirk is a research analyst and PhD candidate at the University of Alicante in Spain. Now, the analysis you did compares costs for seven types of infrastructure projects, urban and rural motorways, road tunnels, rail stations, electricity transmission lines, wind farms, and hospitals around the world. What were some of your key takeaways from that analysis? Yes, um, our findings were actually quite intriguing. Um, I think New Zealand as a nation is taking on the challenge of improving the efficiency of its infrastructure sector. But actually, upon analysis, it turns out that New Zealand does not have significantly high infrastructure construction costs across the board. Um, Our benchmarking of international costs shows that it is only really when it comes to complex large-scale projects, such as large motorways with a lot of bridges, road tunnels, underground rail projects, that the costs do tend to be higher than other high-income countries. Um, We suppose that New Zealand's difficult terrain plays a significant role as a cost driver here. Um, The the cost to deliver smaller standardized infrastructure, on the other hand, like surface ray stations, electricity transmission lines, onshore wind farms, uh, hospitals, in New Zealand is similar when compared to other OECD countries. Hmm. Um, Yeah. Yeah, that was the most the most interesting part of part of the work for me, right? Is seeing that differentiation between different types of projects. You know, it's not all the same story. Um, wh- what do you think that means for the infrastructure sector? Um, well, I think I can chip in here and say that uh, I think it it is quite an interesting challenge for the inter- for the infrastructure sector, and to to actually improve upon, especially the more complex large-scale types of infrastructure, um, the the government probably needs to drive the transformation. Um, I know that reading your uh, your report, based on our report, um, you make the recommendation that the government should act as more of a sophisticated client when it comes to infrastructure projects. And I, I think we absolutely agree with this point. Um, a couple of ideas for acting as a sophisticated client and where we see that governments do this well is is when they succeed in fostering a culture of continuous improvement within the government. So setting up a system to collect, analyze the data on infrastructure project performance, then using that kind of data to identify areas for improvement and best practices. 
And you can look to the report we just did as kind of a high-level example of this. You're looking at where do we see that costs are low and where do we see that countries actually have really well-performing infrastructure projects and where do they do differently. But doing that within New Zealand, I think, is pretty important. Um, other ideas could be things like establishing clear and measurable performance targets for projects and then holding developers and contractors accountable for meeting those targets. Um, when we look at infrastructure around the world, we see that, that this is actually something that clients or governments are not very good at. We live in Denmark and we have this really large hospital building program going on and is nearing completion. And one of the things that happened here was that the Danish government actually did build, I think, 16 large hospitals here. And, and there's been all these news articles about how these projects kept on going over budget. They don't have the quality that was anticipated. We have to go back and change 40 surgery rooms because the air quality wasn't the standard. And this was really because the client, the Ministry of Health here, failed to actually go in and review and hold the contractors accountable and, and do QA on the projects. The only thing that was really looked at was really high-level metrics like uh, cost per square meter and number of square meters built. So the assumption was made that as long as we're on track with the number of square meters built, then the projects are on track. Um, and there was, they really lost the eye for, for actually performance. And so in the end, infrastructure was delivered at a low cost and at a reasonable pace, but the benefits are not really uh, manifesting as, as we were hoping. Um, I think uh, one third idea, which kind of relates to that, is incentivizing good performance. And this is really where I think that it's government that needs to drive behavior, because at the moment we see that, that there's really no incentive for driving good estimating and driving really good performance in projects uh, we see from government side that often politicians or project managers, they they pressure really low costs estimates and they pressure going getting into the ground quickly on projects because they want to get in these big projects started and, and they want to have the name remembered for these projects, right? Um, at the same time, contractors are really incentivized to produce poor unrealistic estimates because they're competing on cost a lot of the time. And so actually implementing a different system that is performance-based and where contractors would be rewarded for good performance and actually have some kind of incentive to producing good estimates and sticking to the estimates, um, that could really help. So just, just demanding that drive and incentivizing, I think is really important. See what what you're saying there's fascinating, right? Because because that's you're echoing back a lot of the a lot of the anxieties and worries that we've got about how things are going. This is a quite common story internationally, um, and 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 your your company Oxford Global Projects is is going and providing advice on infrastructure projects all around the world. Um, would you be able to tell us a bit more about some of some of that broader work and um, maybe what you're learning from it? Yeah, and I, I think what we're learning is uh, it's, it's just so interesting to be a part of because major infrastructure and, and these mega projects, it's it's actually pretty rare that governments take them on. So when we 
or, or collect data from them. We look at, so what, what do these different countries do and how, what's the difference in how they approach infrastructure? Um, and so we have a lot of experience across both geographies and, and different industries. Um, central to all we do is that we have this database of project performance that we have collected over the years. And it, it has data from more than 17,000 projects. And we, we use that data to, to get insight from historical projects and actually try to apply findings to, to upcoming and current projects. Um, generally, our main goal is setting up major projects for success to help clients overcome what, what we call the iron law projects. Um, which is basically uh, the saying that, uh, I mean, our, our founder, Ben Frubia, who is uh, the lead, leading researcher in this field, uh, always says, over budget, over time, under benefits, over and over again. It's, it, we see these systematic uh, budget overruns, delays, um, benefit shortfalls, and Looking at infrastructure over time, we haven't seen an improvement uh, since we started measuring performance by these parameters. Um, to just, I know I'm rambling a bit, but to include and talk about some of the projects that we worked on, we we work on large infrastructure transport programs for where we estimate risk using historical data, like for instance, High Speed Two, which is Europe's largest uh, infrastructure project, sitting at well over 100 billion pounds at the moment. Um, we've done a ton of benchmarking in the hospital sector, which started with us uh, talking to the Ministry of Health in Iceland because they were going to build a new hospital there, the only hospital in the, in the country, and they wanted us to review their, their plans. Um, and so we, those are just examples, and we have a lot of different examples of specific projects we worked on. But I, I think for Dirk, and for me, our main focus as data scientists is, is trying to apply these more data-driven methods to improve projects and particularly estimating. Um, one example I think is really interesting is the Hong Kong Development Bureau, where mm. we are currently developing an AI-based early warning system for spotting high-risk projects. And at the moment, it's kind of it's flagging projects. So we are tracking project cash flow dates and using machine learning models to predict, are these projects going to be delayed? Are they going to go to budget? But there are some quite, some quite you know, intuitive and simple behaviors we see in projects. For instance, if, if projects don't spend um, cash as quickly as we, as we were thinking they would, then obviously they could go under budget, but more likely, it's just that they're delayed and they're not, they're not progressing as fast as they should be. So you spend um, you spend money slower, but you end up spending more of it later on because you run yeah, into the knock-on effects a, of a whole bunch of problems, right? Yeah, exactly. You're going to have a delay, and a delay is costly as well. And often, actually, delays can be worse for governments because it's it's one thing that stakeholders, citizens. Uh, really easily can easily can track they know that oh we have this new metro system it's been announced to start working here in the summer of 2020 it's not i can't go and catch through so something happened there typical for our government right um i think that's uh that would be a story that is uh also typical around the world well there's a there's a flip side to this right you know you've you've talked about 
the the evidence you're finding on bad performance and problems, right? But people are also looking for insight into good performance. So you know, presumably the the when when the Icelandic folks got in touch with you, they were asking for advice on what could go wrong, but probably also what could go right. Is that is that a theme? Yes, exactly. And and so that's often also something that we look for. Um, we have quite a quantitative approach to. Uh, to project planning. And so, as, as you've seen with the, the benchmark report, we're looking to what are the cost drivers or what are the schedule drivers of, of, of projects. But we also look into, oh, are some specific contract types are they more efficient or setting up projects, financing in this way? Did, does that mean that we have lower risk in projects or it could be a wealth of things? Uh, one of the big things that we're looking at at the moment and uh, are doing a lot of work into is modularization. So actually, actually looking at uh, using more modular design uh, and construction of infrastructure projects, breaking the projects down into smaller and more manageable modules, um, whether that improves performance. As far as we can tell, uh, this approach uh, is showing to reduce complexity, improve predictability, and it also leads to faster and more efficient project delivery. And that, that tracks with, uh, I think, that theme about smaller scale standardized projects being more predictable in terms of cost and, and larger, more complex projects being less so. I mean, I suppose the, the question I always have with that is, to what extent is that just forced on you by the context in which you're building the project? The, ge the geology, the the urban environment, the the environmental mitigation, and to what extent is it a choice that people are making to do something that's quite bespoke? I think there's always opportunity to modularize more or less, um, and we see that everywhere, uh, even for things like large-scale hospitals, which is basically it's one large piece of infrastructure, um, which might you might not really think is is able to be modularized in the same way as solar farms or wind farms that are just kind of modules you can click on. Um, we see technologies and and efficiency gains. Um, so I think it can be applied anywhere. You just have to be a bit more creative. And I think the really interesting thing about looking at all this data is that you don't even have to really be that creative. You can just look out into the world and see what are some clever things that others are doing. And why don't we copy that idea, right? So um, that's sort of why I guess you do you do performance benchmarking, right? To know where to look. But I mean, back on the on the on the research a little bit. One of the things that I took away from that was that benchmarking is actually very hard. There's a lot of factors that that matter um, and that that will affect project costs, um, and it's quite difficult to go and control for all of them. Um, you know, we 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 certainly saw that the, the work that you guys did and the analysis, you know, the, the the commentary we put over the top of it as a as a high level sort of lay of the land type study rather than a detailed attempt to drill into drill into all those fine fine details. Could you talk a little bit about how you approach um, uh, that issue and what and what people seeking to do their own benchmarking um, might want to consider in the process? Um. Yeah, so absolutely. Benchmarking, I think uh, benchmarking it can certainly be challenging uh, as there are many factors that can affect cost and schedules. 
Um, and it can be difficult to find similar projects to create benchmark, difficult and even impossible sometimes. Uh, however, even with these challenges, uh, high-level benchmarks are incredibly useful for evaluating infrastructure tools, uh, projects. Um, I think in our approach, we use statistical analysis to select projects that are similar, as similar as possible, while also um, ensuring that we have a broad coverage of different types of projects and, and different countries. So what we usually do, we, we, we test for known costs or scheduled drivers, such as, for example, geographical differences, uh, specific project characteristics, scale. Uh, but we do understand that there are many unknown factors that, that can affect the project cost and, and, and the project schedule. And this is why the best approach is not to find 100% similar projects, because they simply don't exist, but instead to find projects of similar type and cost drivers, and and then consider how the how your project could compare to this pool of reference projects, right? So so we 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 try to take inspiration from Kahneman, stating that getting more information, even when it's not perfect, still helps you to make better decisions. So the key is is to use high-level benchmarks as a starting point, identify areas for improvement and, and make more informed decisions in the end. Um, this, it, it is important to remember that not all drivers can be measured or predicted, and having a distributional understanding can, can provide valuable insights, right? Yeah, and so, if, I mean, if, if you find some, you know, I guess my sim simplistic take on it would be if you find something that's at the end of the distribution, you need to go and turn over some rocks, right? And look and look at what's look at what's going on there. You know. Yeah, but it, on the on the on the other hand, also, um, I think one of our main piece of advice is always to not exclude any distributional information because uh, projects that go ten times over budget have happened before, and you're optimistic when you think that this could never happen to you, right? So it's better to cast the nets a bit wider than you normally would, and and, and never exclude the outliers. Actually, mm -hmm. and yeah, I mean, an I, example of yeah. I guess I was Sorry. thinking more, you know, if 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 I was building a project and I and I discovered that it was near the outlier end of the distribution, um, you know that that would that would probably trigger me to go and look at what's happening there, right? And we might look at look at what was happening and find out that actually there's a whole bunch of good explanations for that, and it's still a still a project that's being delivered as cheaply as it could could possibly given the context. But you know, you would want to ask the question, right? Yeah, sure. I, and also, I think that so sometimes the context is really difficult. To, it's for example, I I remember one challenging benchmark uh, is was we assessed the feasibility of the first road ever to be built between settlements in Greenland. It's, it's what it's called the Arctic Cycle Road. I think Andreas worked a lot of this. I think this was a, a very good example of, of how challenging benchmarking can get because there there's basically no this was the first of its of its type. I think it's a quite a good example of of how do you benchmark when there's no data available. Um, because what, what we were asked to do is that 
there's this there's been this road proposal on for for decades now in Greenland of a road going from Kankaslusuak to Sisimut, which are two settlements in Greenland. And it's called the Arctic Circle Road, a really nice name. Um, and this this road has been discussed for ages and and now there's finally getting it's finally getting some more traction and there's actually a working group looking at is it is it feasible? Is it a good idea to build this road? Do we get any benefits? Is it going to increase tourism, all this stuff? And they came to us and asked us whether uh, whether we could look into the risks of building the road. Is is the bits going or other benefits going to outweigh the costs of building? And so obviously we have quite a different approach to to more detailed estimators. We go out and we look for reference projects, similar projects, and we do this kind of more um, more almost Bayesian approach where we look at the distribution of costs of similar builds and then we make an assessment. Is this going to be one of the more expensive or less expensive ones, just like you said, Peter? Um, and for Greenland, there was no data. There's no never been a road built between settlements. Um, but obviously, Greenland is, is has quite unique characteristics, but it's not the only Arctic country. So we just went out into look into what data could we get from Russia, from Northern Scandinavia, from Iceland, from Alaska, Canada, uh, and looked at similar builds, similar gravel roads, uh, similar uh, constraints in terms of how much drainage is needed and, and other characteristics we could actually look at. And we managed to come up with the benchmark uh, of, I think, 16 projects. So not a big one, but at least 16 projects where we could say, uh, okay, this is the range of costs. This is, you can probably expect something within this range of costs. And what we did is we took the distribution of, of, of this range of the distribution of costs and we used it for modeling. So we, we, we modeled that against the benefits, uh, the benefits estimate. And there we also used benefits shortfall data from, from roads. And we simply modeled the likelihood that the cost is going to, or the benefits are going to outweigh the cost. The Monte Carlo model showed about 65% likelihood that benefits were going to outweigh costs. And so that was the way that we were able to quantify uh, this, the uncertainty in the project, even, even though there's no other roads in Greenland. And, and it could be that Greenland, obviously, there might be some special characteristics that they might not have uh, as much labor accessible and they, there might be some other issues with building in Greenland. But I think Obviously, you can take that into account and you just pick a more uh, a, a higher P level of, of your estimate of the distribution so that you can actually factor in some of that more that uncertainty. Um, yeah, and I, I think that kind of approach is, while this was an example for how how can you do benchmarking in, in for something that is really unique, um, it is also something that could be applied to most other pieces of infrastructure, because what we typically see is that uh, internal project estimates, bottom estimates, are really good at getting the most likely case right, but they vastly underestimate the worst case scenario. And they also underestimate the best case scenario. So we typically see that between the P50 or the P90, that that kind of most likely worst case range is often used in in infrastructure and budgeting. 
decisions. Um, we see that that's just way too narrow. Typically, the P9s would be 80% more than doubling the budgets. And sometimes we see that model as, oh, you need 30% additional budget. Yeah. We've, um, we've got a tendency to sort of ask for 10% funding contingency, which seems a bit heroic in an environment of 10% annual inflation and construction costs. But um, uh, just just briefly to, to, to sort of wrap up, um, Ox, uh, Oxford Global Projects has also done a lot of work looking at cost and schedule overruns for major infrastructure projects, as you've mentioned. And this is a quite... <clears throat> This wasn't the focus of, of of our current research, although you touched on it in your report. Um, but it is a hot topic at the moment. Um, so, what what are some key insights um, from your work in that area? The main finding is what we what we already said before the the, the so called iron law uh, of mega projects uh, is that major projects systematically have budget overruns and uh, and delays, and they don't deliver the benefits that they, they are set out to deliver, right? It, this is over and over and over again. It's it's all, all over the place every time. So uh, research shows that this is mainly due to psychological biases and also to political pressures. Um, and one way to tackle those systematic issues is, is using more data, like, like benchmarks and planning and find new ways to use this data and and, and look at the insights. What we see in, the, in, in when looking at all these, these projects, these 17,000 projects, is that most issues in, in infrastructure planning uh, are actually planning issues. It's not uh, projects. Projects often they have this tendency to try to explain away and say, oh, these things happened to us. We, we didn't realize we couldn't work 24 hours a day in the middle of Copenhagen on, on our metro system. But really, that kind of that kind that kind of risk of being delayed because some of your assumptions are are wrong um, is something that you should you should be planning for. So you should be looking at well, how long should it is it realistic that it takes to build a metro system in the middle of a major city, right? And I, I think a lot, we have some other findings. It's not just related to oh that that project planning is bad and that that um, there's lots of biases in that because there's, I think there's lots of good good examples as well. Um, but some of the other findings are, are just things like we've talked about that uh, what that things like complexity makes it really difficult to 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 plan properly. And so if you can if you can try to deal and remove some of that complexity, you will not probably have a more successful project. In the end, modularization is good. Um, projects should be better and, and especially client evaluating projects should be better at handling the uncertainty that is just associated with infrastructure building. Um, we often see that that clients, they just, they want a single point estimate and they don't really want to understand uncertainty. And, and it's often that in most co project communication, it goes to steering boards, we see that it's often certainty and estimated that's communicated. It's not the uncertainty or what are the risks in these estimates? What are the assumptions we made? Because if that was clearly communicated, you wouldn't see examples like the Copenhagen Metro trying to work 24 hours a day, right? And that 
comes back to what you were saying earlier about the importance of being a sophisticated client of infrastructure and understanding understanding all the ins and outs um, of of what you're doing and and, and it's likely performance. Um, fantastic insights on all of that. Um, and thanks so much for taking the time to talk to us, Andreas and Dick. It's been a pleasure working with both of you on this. Um, for those who are interested in learning more, um, please visit our website, tewahanga.govt.nz to find links to both the reports. Thanks again, folks. Thanks for listening to Infrastructure for a Better Future. To find out more about the infrastructure challenges we are facing, visit strategy.tiwahanga.govt.nz.